welcome to Tripping Over the Barrel, a series that highlights the unique personalities within the oil and gas industry and the stories they have to share with your hosts and lead storytellers, Tilo and Dr. Funkenstein. ESG, ESG, ESG. Now you're saying that right as uh, you are sitting here today and the spill happened over the weekend oh, crap. off the coast of California. So, I mean, you know, that's. Should we talk about that real quick? Because I've only read some snippets from the news and what EFT tells me. But Tim, why don't you give a kind of a descriptor of what you know of what happened? Well, I mean, near as I could tell, the uh, uh, offshore platform pipeline coming in ruptured, perhaps because of a ship anchor, perhaps oh. for something else. Um, still trying to figure that out, but you know, roughly three thousand gallons um, is the high re- three thousand barrels. Sorry, is the high report for the amount of oil that got out, and you know, it's hit the beaches and you know, got a couple birds, and uh, um, you know, has sparked a lot of debate. You know, in California, you could expect, hey, stop all oil and gas production. Period. Offshore, onshore, let's stop it all. So it's been kind of interesting, and I don't know what it's like. Uh, we'll we'll get to Karthik here in a bit. To yeah. what it's like actually living in California, hearing about it. But our former guest uh, Mike Umbro has been having a field yeah. day on LinkedIn talking about. Oh uh, yeah, I was going to reach out to him about it too because it's it's very much his wheelhouse, right? Yeah. Um, but no, Karthik, we got Karthik Balakrishnan here. Karthik and I met a couple of months ago through uh, old friend Andrew Chan, uh, friend and former guest on the podcast. Um, and Andrew was kind of aware that I've been on the hunt for companies who are doing real life ESG reporting, integration technology from other industries. Like it's so new in oil and gas to me, at least Tim, you know, there's some companies out there that seem to be dabbling. And then you've got data companies that are saying here, this is all you need. But I'm personally curious how other industries like aerospace, right? Like heavy freight have dealt with ESG in the past. Cause I know this didn't just get invented. It just sort of hit our radar a few years ago. Um, so introduced me to Karthik, met him and his team, San Francisco guys, um, have that level of experience. So we're going to dive into what his company actual does, but before all that, Karthik, why don't you give us kind of a brief introduction? Tell us about your, uh, you know, childhood going to school and then what led you to kind of the ESG world technology world today? Yeah, thanks. Uh, you know, for, first off, thanks for uh, having me. This is uh, you know really kind of interesting, super timely, and I think there's a lot of uh, kind of questions about what ESG even means, right? Like people are not unclear what the G stands for, what the S stands for, what the E stands for, and so it's it's one of those things where sort of the eye is you know it, it's kind of in the eye of the beholder <laughs> to some extent, um, and so there's there's really an opportunity to you know to kind of dive in and shape and understand how it actually affects different industries in different ways. Um, so I grew up mostly in the Bay Area, but also on uh, the East Coast, um, moved out to, to Maryland when I was in uh, right before high school. Uh, so I went to high school in Maryland and, and kind of missed California. So I came back, uh, did my undergraduate degree uh, at UC San Diego in aerospace engineering um, and you know decided that four years of an engineering degree wasn't enough, that I was a, a glutton for, for punishment. And so I decided to do a, a graduate degree. Uh, so I uh, came back to the Bay Area um, and uh, did a master's and PhD in AeroAstro at Stanford. So basically building spacecraft to do physics experiments in space. Uh, uh, so one so- of my favorite jokes, <laughs> I've got to hit this, Jer- sorry, J- Jeremy, but one of my favorite jokes was um, you know, I, I was getting done with my degree plan and it was time to start thinking about jobs. And one of the guys that I was going to school with said, hey, I want to 
stick around and go ahead and get another year and a half and get my aeros get an aerospace degree. And everyone's uh -huh. like, why, why would you want to do that? It, this was the end of the Cold War. And everybody's like, there, there's no jobs for that. And he goes, no, no, no. Just because if I'm at a party and someone says this isn't rocket science, <laughs> I can step in and say, well, I am a rocket scientist. And let me tell you about it. So you can't actually wear the T-shirt that says, ask me, I'm a rocket scientist. It's it, it's pretty funny when we get together with uh, grad school friends because it's you know you'll have a bunch of rocket scientists kind of like how do you turn the grill on? <laughs> <laughs> right, I can totally picture that. No, just knowing my dad, who's a doctor, I guess of of psychology and professor. Yeah, good luck getting him trying to change a light bulb. Right, right. Oh, yeah. uh, and the rest of his the rest of his friends come over. Yeah, right. Yeah, grill, cook meat. What? Oh, no, we don't know. Too much time in books. But no, yeah. so Dr. Dr. K, so you finish up at Stanford. It, it, you know, that was an option for me too. I just, you know, went a, went a different route, became a podcaster instead. So Yeah, what, you had a food truck outside of Stanford? Is that what you were going to do? They didn't actually let me on campus, but, you know, I was, I was close okay. by. So, so you finish up at Stanford, what, looks like, I don't know, a, a, 10 years ago or so, and, and then, then what happens? Yeah, so, you know, it was actually quite interesting. I mean, I think aerospace has these these super long timelines to get anything done, right? It's a very conservative industry. And, and one of the things that um, actually happened for me was, you know, I built a spacecraft, um, you know, with collaborating with NASA, delivered the payload, and it was going to be a few years before launch. And I was like, okay, well, I need the data to graduate. What do I do? And you know, the advisor was basically like, you know, keep yourself busy, find something to do. So I, I actually took a leave of absence for a little bit. And, and during that leave of absence, uh, co-founded a consumer electronics company called Coin. Um, and so this was about, about a decade ago. Um, we had one of the first uh, hardware pre-order campaigns, um, and at the time, the largest hardware pre-order campaign, nearly twenty million dollars of pre-orders. Um, and this was basically for a electronics device, literally the same size as a credit card. It's the same thickness, same dimensions, with a battery and a button and a screen and a dynamic magnetic stripe. So essentially, you could load your cards on through your iPhone over Bluetooth instead of carrying you know, a stack wallet of credit cards, you could carry just the coin. And I think I saw some of these on Facebook. Were you guys running Facebook ads or was that a competitor? Yeah. Like were there knockoffs? Cause I, I know what you're talking about and it seemed cool pre-order only. I didn't do it. This is, I'm, you're bringing me back now. Yeah, no, this, we, we did a lot of Facebook ads. We uh, did a lot of Instagram ads. This was sort of in, in the, in the early days of, right. uh, of this. So, you know, a lot of the, uh, um, sort of, content marketing, content strategy uh, that, that's been reused a lot since then for, for pre-orders. We, we actually ended up pioneering a lot of that. Um, but what was really interesting is nobody had built a device like this before, right? And electronics are not 0.7 millimeters thick finished, right? <laughs> right? Like the circuit board in most devices is 0.7 millimeters thick. Then you have the solder and the chips and it's all thicker. So I spent a lot of time basically deep diving into materials into battery chemistry into the wafer manufacturing process to get chips that were thinner than you know ti and the other providers could normally make to get everything to you know to go in and it really gave me kind of a deep understanding of the complexities of supply chain right and it's very easy to say mm -hmm. well you know we're going to put these restrictions on this industry that's making this particular chemical because who uses it and you actually deep dive and you're like well everyone uses it it's such a basic component of this particular kind of, you know, PCB material, it's such an integral component to this kind of solder where you're talking, you're looking at, you know, the 30,000 foot level, you don't necessarily know how these things are produced and manufactured. So that was really eye-opening eye for me where, you know, 
when you think about regulations, legislation, when you think about sort of corporate policy that sort of the customers are putting in, how that flows down into tier two, tier three, tier four suppliers, nobody actually knows what the effects are until you're the engineer sitting in the factory like, mm. this thing works, but I can't use it because in this country, there's this thing, how do I solve that? So kind of understanding those knock-on effects. We got acquired by uh, Fitbit. And so if you have a Fitbit and you add your credit cards, Coin basically is, is the back end for all of that. Nice. Um, and, at, and at that point, I was like, you know what? Satellite launched. I did all the work for a PhD. Uh, I should go and finish it up. So I <laughs> went back to Stanford, nice. spent a quarter, wrote the thesis, defended. Uh, you know, I was like, it, it didn't make sense just to do it. I've done all the work. Um, and then I thought to myself, you know, I did a PhD in aerospace engineering. Maybe I should actually go into the aerospace industry and do something with this degree. Um, kind of makes sense, right? Uh, so I went to Airbus, and Airbus at the time uh, had just started what was called, or what's still called, A-cubed, um, which is basically internal disruption for Airbus, right? So recognizing that aerospace has a tendency to be very conservative, has a tendency to be very, very slow, and for good reason, right? If you're going to stick yourself in a metal tube six miles in the air. <laughs> I want the plane <laughs> tested. <laughs> I like to know it's somewhat safe, right? Yeah, it, it's got to work, right? But one of the issues that that, that comes into play is, R&D and discovery needs to be a little bit freed from the constraints of the production process and from the production kind of assurance level, right? So how do we go and build something really quickly and get to a point where we understand if this is going to work or not? And then we go through the process of making it possible to certify and, and get into real aircraft. So A-cubed was basically started with the idea of, Let's get these technologies, knowing that if they succeed, they're going to have to be certified, but really accelerate progress. So mm. one of the big things that, um, that that you've probably seen in the aerospace industry is eVTOLs, right? Electric vertical takeoff and landing aircraft, right? So air taxis. So you've got Joby, you've got Wing, you've got uh, Archer, you've got a bunch of different players, um, WISC, um, basically building electric helicopters, essentially. Right, they look right. different because mm -hmm. they're you know they're running on electric power. They've got mm -hmm. distributed lift. They've got you know maybe tilt wing. They can go further. They can go faster. But one of the really interesting things is this drops the operating cost. It's almost like going from Ferraris to Civics. Right, when you have a Civic, you're going to have a lot more of them. And when you have a lot more of them, what does that do to air traffic control? So I joined Aircubed basically to figure out how do we take air traffic control out of the 1920s. There's been updates. You know, don't get me wrong, but Fundamentally, it's still two people talking over the radio, mm. right? They've got a lot more support systems that have been, you know, um, moving from writing things down, you know, better radar, better monitoring systems, better, you know, everything. But it's still two people talking, right? How do you get from that to something where it's computers talking and humans are much more strategic? So I started a program that's now called Airbus UTM. It was called Altascope then. And we started working a lot with regulators with transport officials with airlines with pretty much everyone in the ecosystem to kind of understand how do you make this change because people have a tendency to think that it's purely technological right you build a great system and it's going to get adopted but the reality is that this system has had north of a trillion dollars invested in it since its conception right in terms of like the control towers all the electronics in the control towers all the training everything so you go to somebody who's invested north of a trillion dollars and say tear it out and replace it with this thing. You've got to have a really good reason for why. What are the costs? What are the impacts? And is, is anything going to get worse? 
mean, if things get worse, there's no point doing it. Well, I mean, imagine <clears throat> just a thousand of these little planes moving around. I'm in Houston, moving around Houston. You know, they're not going along the freeway path necessarily. They're yeah. moving, you know, in different directions. And if, can you imagine how, I can't even imagine the two-way communication to get all these guys, hey, I'm going to fly from here to the Galleria going this way. No, you're, no, you can't go. You need to be at 3000 feet or 1000 feet. I I can't imagine how that's going to be. It's a crazy complicated technical problem, but even if you solve it, you've got to get it, you know, you've got to get it deployed and adopted. And if you can't, it doesn't matter that you have these aircraft that can do these missions. And now you think about drone delivery, right? Um, I think Walgreens is now in in certain areas testing, uh, delivering COVID tests by a drone. Um, The, the reality is, that when we think about airspace, it has to get digitized. When we think about industries in general, it's a, I mean, it's a digital transformation, right? Same thing for aviation, same thing for everything else. But one of the things that kept coming up over and over and over again, when I talked to, like, to regulators around the world was the challenges that you're dealing with when it comes to the air traffic management system is 100% what we're dealing with when it comes to ESG when it comes to climate change, when it comes to any of these kind of things. If you go to a trucking company and you tell them, we're going to mandate that you buy electric trucks. We're going to mandate that you switch to hydrogen trucks. Sure. They're going to come to you and say, well, look, I've got trucks today that bring boxes from point A to point B. Right. And if I switch, I'm going to spend a lot of time. I'm going to spend a lot of money. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the day, what I'm going to have, I'm going to have trucks that bring boxes from point A to point B. Right. So why should I switch? Is there an economic value? Probably. Right in terms of OPEX, is there a uh, market competitiveness advantage potentially? Right, if you have customers who have net zero mandates, it's going to flow mm-hmm. down to you. But purely from a operations perspective, does it make sense to go right. through the pain of truck, you know, literally scrapping your old trucks, buying new trucks, overhauling your maintenance facilities, retraining everybody? The range is going to be different, right? So mm-hmm. changing everything to make that thing possible and every time you look it you know it's this question of inertia right you have huge amount of inertia in these industries and they're getting mandates from their customers from their the governments that they're operating inside you know under the jurisdiction of etc to start changing and it's like how do i change what do i change when do i change and how do i make this change in a way that my business survives yeah Right. Man, and, and that's really the key. I'm sitting here thinking of the parallel to the exactly. industry that we serve right now. As you're going through it, I'm like, wow, yeah, okay. I mean, all the same demands and, and reasonings and and then how. And then and, yeah. and the complication in oil and gas, of course, is we've got wells distributed in mm-hmm. such broad distances and pipelines, existing pipelines and everything else. You know, I, I see I see the I see the parallel into the oil and gas space easily. Yeah, it's, you know, it's one of those things, you know, it's very easy to build a white paper that says we're going to do this. But the people who are writing the white papers are not necessarily the ones on the ground who are like, you know what, it's more complex than that, right? There's a reason that we do certain things. Right. Um, and coming up with a plan, coming up with a strategy is so critical to actually being able to execute, right? If it's simply we're going to do this and there's no, there's no kind of a top-down Here's a roadmap. Here's a plan. Here's how we're going to do it. Nothing's going to get done because the complexity on the ground is so high 
that you simply can't actually start taking any kind of actions. So I want I want to jump a little bit deeper into that because I know you know you've got such a wealth of knowledge and understanding. Can you give sort of like a real life specific example? So. ESG today is disparate, right? You've got emissions tracking over here. You've got uh, emissions maybe from transportation and health and safety and governance and all these things. When you come in and you say a roadmap, how do you kind of bring all of these things? Like, how do you prioritize what matters? How do you bring these things together? And how do you sort of back into that? Yeah, so I think I think one of the key challenges really is that there's a tendency to want the perfect end-to-end complete solution in right you know, 100% accuracy before taking that first step. And the reality is that's impossible, right? Like if you're an aerospace company, right, where is your hydrogen aircraft today? It doesn't exist. It's being developed, right? I mean, friends over at Universal Hydrogen, I think they've got a really great shot within the next five years of having the technology to convert a lot of regional aircraft over to hydrogen, right? And that's a good opportunity for folks to go and produce hydrogen to fuel those aircraft, right? But United Airlines today cannot buy a hydrogen airplane. They cannot buy an electric airplane. They're ordering aircraft under development, right? So for an airline to come in and say, we're going to do exactly this thing that's based on technology that is still an R&D, it just doesn't make sense. What's important is to say, here's the impact you want to have over time, right? Knowing that there's going to be an error, right? Are you going to hit you know, a 40% emissions reduction in 20 years or 21 years or 18 years. There's going to be a margin of error and that's okay. What's important is roughly being directionally accurate and saying, based on what we know about physics, based on what we know about chemistry, based on what we know about the market demands, because a lot of times it's not about the physics of the chemistry. It's about what the market is demanding you to do. Well, yeah. Your own investors. I mean, if you're a... Yeah. Airline company, a, oh, by the way, yeah, we want you to go to hydrogen or to clean or you know, whatever it is. And oh, by the way, you still need to be profitable. Yep. Yeah, you know, through the whole yeah, process. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. There's a there's a practicality. You know, I, I just to give you a parallel, um, you know, we've we've heard all the various uh, operating companies say, Hey, we're gonna be net zero by this date, or you know, we're gonna strive for a fifty mm-hmm. percent reduction in emissions by this date. Um, and you know. Meanwhile, some of them are just divesting of high, mm-hmm. high uh, emitting or high CO two assets. Yeah, and others, you know, they're they're changing their mix. But it's kind of hard. You make a new gas field discovery, and you say, "All right, we're going to use that, you know, to offset something somewhere else." And then we know that, so we're going to reduce our emissions by fifty percent in this field from this date to this date. But they can't take into effect in twenty years. However. We're going to have to bring on compression or this field is going to be uneconomic. So this field is actually going to increase in emissions in 20 years, but we'll reach our target in 10. So, you know, so it gets very complex if you're not doing your planning well. I don't know. I don't, well, that, that, no, that's exactly right. Because if you have a plan, if you say, here's the roadmap that we have to hit, then you can judge every single dollar of CapEx you spend against that plan, right? You can say... Yeah. Is this going to get me closer into compliance with my plan or further away? And then if it's going to get you further away, then you say, what am I going to do to offset that? Whether it's, you know, by shutting something else down earlier, by transitioning something earlier, what have you. But I think one of the key problems is analysis paralysis, right? It's this yeah. thing of 
we need to solve every problem before we can take the first step. And the real answer is actually take the first step, right? You take the first step because that's going to get you into an, a mode where <laughs> to take that first step, you set up the basic infrastructure needed to collect your data. You set up the, you know, reporting is kind of, kind of a pain, um, but you can set up, you know, the infrastructure to do your reporting. You can set up what's needed to take that first step. And then it's like the nucleus around which everything else grows. This is, this is so, this is great stuff. And you know what it reminds me of a little bit, Tim, is uh, master data management. I was just talking to a CFO of a company that has about 6,000 operated wells, 1,000 non-op. They've had sort of their core systems in place to track production accounting, you know, general ledger, land, GIS, production forecasting. They're mature in that regard. And they're in a little bit of analysis paralysis mode with this master data management because they think they have to boil the ocean. They know it's not a good idea, but they feel like they have to do it because of the requests coming from the business around reporting, right? Well, if we do that, that means we need this system here. We need them like, maybe just start with one area, right? Let's attack your financials, right? And tie that together with your invoices and see if the data starts to line up, gain comfort and build it out from there. But a lot of master data management projects have failed because I think the operator wants the big bang approach. And of course, if they're going to give you money, you're going to do it like that. But that's not the way to have an effective sort of data management strategy. And I think what you're getting at is sort of the same thing. The CSG thing is a little bit intimidating. Um, It's going to get a lot more intimidating when you can't get money. (laughs) Um, But no one knows where to start, right? And I think that's where I'm seeing a lot of people saying, I don't know. Or, yeah, we talk about it. But but I'm curious for companies that really take that plunge. What what does it look like? So what it, what it looks like is, you know, there's a tendency for folks to think, well, the first thing we have to do is collect a bunch of data. The first thing we have to do is digitize everything. We have to put sensors on everything. We have to create this data lake. Then we can have a you know a bunch of APIs that um, the data gets you know shoved into. And what we found is that's super counterproductive because until you know what you're going to do with the data. What's the point? It's like it's like trying to design a hammer without ever having seen a nail, right? <laughs> like, yes, hammers are important, but you have to understand what is the problem you're trying to solve, right? Is it you know is it a spike that's going into a railroad? Is it like a little nail for hanging a, a picture you know on on your wall? Like, what are you trying to drive? Then you can design the hammer. And I think data is that that same way where the companies that have the biggest gap between where they're going to need to be in an ESG roadmap and where they are today are also the companies that are, you know, the least digitally transformed, typically, right? And that's not a fault of the companies necessarily. It's, you know, these companies have incredibly complex operation, right? They're all over the place. They've been operating for decades. And it's one of these things where do you rip out everything and put in something new just to capture data? And the answer is no. The answer is we can start with basically stick your finger in the, you know, in the wind and see approximately where this data would net out to if you were to go and spend a bunch of money collecting it. Because then you can build out a model of your system. And you can say, if I you know, start to wiggle an input here, which outputs wiggle? Do I care that those outputs wiggle? Yeah. And let me go and just instrument the things that are going to be material if I get it wrong. Right? Then you can take that first step. And you can say, OK, because I've taken this first step, as part of that step, that's when you start to instrument them. Right. So instead of trying to instrument everything backwards and trying to get, you know, terabytes of data every single day Mm. backwards, take the first step, 
and then decide what do I need to instrument, right? Which data do I need flowing in? Because otherwise you end up amassing this huge amount of data and you, then it turns into this position of, I've got all this data, did you account for all of it in doing your analysis? Mm. And that's where analysis paralysis comes in. Because if you think about the kind of calculation that people are doing today with supercomputers, 75 years ago before supercomputers, people were doing the same calculations and their calculations were not that different. Just different you frequency. Know, different frequency, different error bar, but generally, you know, one year out, two years out, five years out, they were pretty accurate, right? The supercomputer is useful. Like, don't get me wrong, when you're trying to optimize and you're trying to squeeze your margins and like improve your margins because of, you know, squeezing economics, that becomes really important. But that first step of what am I going to instrument has to come before let me instrument everything and get stuck. Mm -hmm. So is that, I mean, I guess from a, coming to with actual, uh, your, your current gig, are you consulting your clients on, on this or is it, are you selling them a, a system? How, what, what's your approach uh, to your current clients? Yeah. So we, we partner with experts in the field, right? So we're a software company that basically builds tools that help you know, build plans at a low resolution and as data comes in, improve the resolution of those models um, to the point where you can go from being directionally accurate to operationally accurate as you start to execute against them, right? So take that first step, we get data, the models get better, et cetera. But we're not experts in every domain, right? We're doing work in telecom. We're doing work, you know, uh, in, uh, in transportation. We're doing work in education. You know, there, there's a number of different sectors where, the same challenges apply, but we're not necessarily experts in everything to do with telecom and we're definitely not experts in everything to do with oil and gas. What we're really about doing is empowering the experts in these fields to use the platform to build models with data that's readily available, um, basically a swag, right? And then improve that over time. So you can think of it essentially like your system of record, right? This is where you make the strategic planning this is where you flow things down through the organization. And this is most importantly, where you track the outcomes of those things and you decide, mm -hmm. is this worth deploying across the company, across the portfolio or not? So as a former player of SimCity, I'm intrigued of you, by your comment on your website, you know, and I think Jeremy even mentioned it, how SimCity inspires our approach. Is it a... Love it. Is it, is it that kind of a... Is it gamified in that way where you're actually just kind of dropping in a building here and, and seeing how it changes things? Yeah. I mean, you can, you can, you can think about some city, but imagine if the models were real, right? And imagine if the models, an expert looked at them and made sure that they were relevant to your business. Because one of the things that we've seen is that right now you have a bunch of different people who need to look at the same kind of outputs to make a decision. Right. When it comes to finance, when it comes to risk, when it comes to, you know, specifically what are we going to do when it comes to reporting out to the community, when it comes to reporting to governments, et cetera. And right now it's basically we're shuttling Excel files back and forth. The Excel files grow. Someone is like, this file is too big. I'm going to take copy and paste this one sheet out to another sheet that things get out of sync. What we really are about is, you know, how do you take somebody? who has a million things on their mind and very quickly make it easy for them to understand, here's the plan, right? And have underneath it, the models, the data, the workflow, 
everything that can be inspected, right? So SimCity is sort of the, the top of the layer where instead of having to read through a 400 you know, page PDF to understand what is the plan, what are we doing, literally within 10 minutes, look at the map, click around, get up to speed, right? Because one of the things that games do really well is they're good at communicating a huge volume of information in the amount of time it takes you to react, right? Like the, if you think about like playing any game, the amount of volume of information that like you watch a game for 10 seconds, imagine that as like a PDF, <laughs> you know, just think about how many pages you'd have to read. Mm. So games are really good at doing that. And so this problem is so complex and they're so, it's so broad that getting that information in front of the user in a way that's motivating, where they can say, you know what, I understand this. This is something that can work or this is something that can't work. But instead of spending an entire week to understand it, get that time down so then they can spend the time going into the details of the things that are actually relevant to the business and they can discard the things that aren't. This is uh, this is great. And yeah, I, I really want to get into <clears throat> why, in your opinion, and just in general, why from a financial standpoint should oil and gas operators start caring about ESG right now? Um, cause, cause you're actually one of the people that brought it to my radar that like, Hey man, this is happening quicker than you think. And we've seen this in other industries and it's not just talk. It's actually becoming real. So talk to me about, I guess the, the risks, uh, and risk mitigation that oil and gas companies should probably take over the next 12, 18, 24 months. Yeah. You know, cost of capital is a big one. And this is a care. This is both a care and a stick. So when you think about, you know, your cost of capital, whether it's debt, you know, debt or equity, the reality is that that's really a function of risk over the lifetime of that financial transaction, right? So if you're, if you're issuing a bond, if you're selling you know, shares, whatever it is, there's going to be a certain cost, right? What the buyer is doing is trying to understand what is your business going to look like over that lifetime? Are you a growing business or not, number one? What is the risk that your operations are going to get shut down? that a permit is going to get pulled, that your customers are going to move away, et cetera. And so the more likely those things are to happen, the higher this cost gets. So if you are supplying to companies that have a net zero mandate, and they're saying, we're gonna be net zero by 2030, for example, that's very aggressive. I think companies that say they're gonna be net zero by 2030 are gonna have a hard time, but yeah. let's just say that, you know, that, that you're supplying to a company that does that. You're now at risk. Because that company is going to say, wait a minute, I'm purchasing this product that I'm burning, which is making it hard for me to meet my mandates. How am I going to counter that? Do I buy carbon credits, which increases my own costs? Do I switch to a different fuel source? Maybe I switch to hydrogen. Maybe I switch to you know, electric. Do I just shut down that business line? Right. All of these things then become ramifications back to that supplier. Right. So if you're producing diesel, the buyer of the diesel, if they end their contracts, that's a risk that, you know, on, on the financial viability of your organization, right? Mm -hmm. So that's what's coming into cost of capital. And more and more investors are starting to see this because they're recognizing, I mean, 50% of global GDP today is covered by some sort of a net zero mandate, right? 50% wow, wow. of global GDP, Wow, which is nuts. Now, some of this is government. Most of it is private, right? It's Fortune 1000 companies saying that we're going to be net zero by 
2030, 2040, 2050, which means that if you're a tier one supplier, tier four supplier, tier six supplier, whatever it is, at some point, that customer that has made that mandate is going to hold you accountable for those emissions. They're either going to make you build the price of the credits into the product, they're going to make you go to a process that is not polluting, or they're going to switch entirely, right? So the question then becomes, how do you remain relevant as this is happening? So that's kind of the, I call it the carrot, even though it feels like a stick, because it's one of those things that is, it's collaborative, right? You can work with your suppliers and understand what are they looking at instead? How can you provide that as a product? How do you shift your processes, right? You might be able to actually hit their roadmaps by, you know, inspecting for methane leaks, for example, right? By improving the efficiencies of your own drilling operations, right? So there may be ways to do this if you can understand and work with the clients to understand what are, what are their roadmaps look like. The stick really is regulators in the U.S., the SEC, right? Oh. The SEC is not an environmental regulator. <laughs> they actually don't really care about yeah. environmentally what a company is committing to or not. But here's the thing. When a company says that they have a net zero mandate, when a company says that they have an ESG plan or they make some sort of a statement, investors look at that and they say, mm -hmm. you know what? This company is taking risks into account. They're low, less risky. So I'm going to give them a lower cost of capital. And the SEC cares about that. They care about the fact that you said you're going to do something that the investors believed was going to reduce your risk. And so the SEC is going to hold you accountable to that, right? Mm. It's sort of like saying, hey, we have a contract to sell into this massive market. Well, if you didn't have a contract to sell into the massive market, the SEC is going to come after you because guess what? That's fraud, yeah. right? So now these customers that have said we're going to be net zero by 2050 and here's our roadmap, suddenly they're in a position where they actually have to hit those metrics. Because wow, that's, if, that's, there's yeah. an interesting parallel when it comes to just reserves statements. Yeah, absolutely. You know, in oil and gas, we, you know, every, every publicly traded company has to tell the SEC, hey, these are our reserves. They're in our annual report and the SEC holds them accountable the same reason. It's our, I promise. I yep. promise we'll produce this given these conditions. And I, I've never actually made that parallel. I really appreciate you doing that, that the SEC is as part of the stick. There's a reporting requirement. If you say you're going to be net 50, people have, the public has invested in your company because of that. And if you don't hit that, if you don't make that promise, you know, your stock is going to be hit and, you know, we're going to come after you. Wow. Yeah. 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 And, it, and it's one of these things, right? Where when you think about green bonds, green ETFs, um, they're oversubscribed by a factor of four. Regular bonds are oversubscribed by a factor of like 20%. Right. Mm. So what that means is that investors are going more and more towards opportunities, which build themselves as ESG positive, climate positive, et cetera, which it's a feedback loop. The SEC is like, there's more attention going. So I'm going to pay more attention right. because the SEC is paying more attention. The investors go into it harder. And it's just this reinforcing cycle. And that's just getting kicked off. And so I think what's what's really interesting in our discussions with large investors is that they're actively going through and starting with tagging um, their, their portfolio, but really over the next couple of years, starting to understand at a really detailed level, which companies expose my portfolio to ESG risk and which ones don't, mm. right? And it's not just about reporting, right? It's not just about here's this long PDF where I you know, cut and paste some values from an Excel spreadsheet and you know no one's going to read that, right? Like someone has paid to read it, but it's 
it's really hard to make decisions off of that. What they really care about is, you know, they know that you can't cut the emissions to zero today, for example, right? But what is your roadmap to get there? How are you as a, as a business going to be viable over the next 30 years? What are you going to do over the next 30 years to get there? And oh, by the way, we also understand that, for example, you know, there's going to be a huge demand for plastics, right? So like in medical devices, right? So there's going to have to be production of mm -hmm. all of these components, all of these chemicals that go into all these things that actually at the end of the day don't result in emissions, right? So how do we keep those things alive while trans transitioning this other part of the economy? So it's an incredibly complex problem. And this is yeah. what leads to the analysis paralysis, right? Is people see the scope of the problem, they're like, oh my God, I need to solve this whole thing at once. And it's like, exactly. Wait, let's, let's decompose it. Let's take the first step. Let's get you in this mindset and let's get moving. Wow. It's fascinating stuff. I love it. I love it. I mean, you know, cause Karthik, this is your world, right? You're an expert. I think you did a pretty good job of breaking it down to the layman like Tim and myself on this call. And, and I think, you know, you talked about 30 years, five years. Like I think the panic will set in a lot sooner in oil and gas just because it's so, um, you know, carbon intensive and it's also so capital intensive. So with that combination, it's like the perfect storm to be like, how clean is this operator? And, and are they going to get our money when money is already kind of shied away from this industry? Right. To spend it in a positive. Also, yeah, go ahead. And also just politically, it's a, it's an easy yeah. target. It makes it, you know, when yeah. you don't hit those targets, you, you, there's a whole nother element to it. Yeah, I think I think the, the the public perception is is really quite important, right? Is that as people switch over to products in their day to day lives that, that you know, require less gas, right? If you, if you buy an EV, suddenly you care a little bit less about whether the gas station on the corner survives, right? So what is that gas station going to do, right? Yeah. How do you know how do they transition? Maybe you're buying less mechanic services because the EV is, is is you know has fewer moving parts. So there's this there's this thing where when you're a part of someone's day-to-day -day life, they're going to view you differently than if they've transitioned away. Okay. So how do you remain relevant as a company? How do you reinvent as a company where you can provide, like it, it's about adaptation, right? It's about understanding that the world in 2100 is going to look very different from the world in 2021, right? And there's a roadmap to get there. How do you start taking those steps today so that you know the legacy of the business remains, even if the business looks quite different, right? Mm -hmm. Because in a lot of the companies today, 100 years ago, they were doing different things, right? right. So, like, it's reinvention is is normal, right? It has to happen. Um, it has to happen. So, yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's fascinating. I really, we could probably do this a long time. You know, we never actually got to defining what E and the S and the G are. <laughs> I mean, because they, they, I mean, we all remember, at least I remember, my early career, we start out with HS and E. That was always the thing in, yep. in oil and gas was you know health, safety, and environment. And it's obviously some of the same letters are still there, but it, it has morphed a little bit, hasn't it? It has. So it's ESG is environmental, social, and governance, right? And it's recognizing, number one, that the governance of the organization matters, right? Because when you when you have a set of viewpoints managing the company that understands not just the operations, not just the market, but the broader ecosystem, mm -hmm. you can make better decisions about what the company should be doing. It's about social because you're starting to understand what is the impact that this company, its product, its operations are having on the broader environment, positive or negative, right? And it's environmental. 
as well, right? You know, what are we doing in terms of emissions, in terms of you know, an oil spill, um, et cetera. But I think the really important thing is that these are all intertwined. They're all linked together, right? If you look at Southeast Asia, right, the amount of energy that is being consumed in Southeast Asia, in various African countries and South American countries is skyrocketing, right? Because these individuals, they want running water at home. Water is heavy. It takes a lot of energy to pump water. They want the power on for more than two hours a day. How do you generate that power? They want to be able to get to work, right? So you got to run buses, you got to run trains, you have cars and mopeds and auto rickshaws and all these things. That social progress, right? That social um, sort of leveling requires and has an environmental impact. So everything is intertwined, right? So when you go out to build a bus network, right, there's an environmental component. Right? What is the impact that this busing, this bus system is going to have on the environment based on the fuel type that we pick, based on you know the lanes that we build? What is the social impact in terms of mobility, in terms of income, in terms of health and, and quality of life? And how do we govern that system in a way that we build a network to actually be used? Right. So everything is super intertwined, um, and it's it's really a much more holistic way of looking at it, not from the perspective of oh you know, this thing is going to improve my quarterly results, but doing this is going to lead to a much more long-term sustainable business, not just sustainability from a environmental perspective, but sustainability from a financial perspective, right? That by creating a company that can last, that can sell to more markets, that can sell into growing markets, that's mm -hmm. how you build a growing business. I got one final question, and then we can wrap this thing up. What, what does the upstream oil and gas industry look like in five or 10 years? Like, it, clearly, this is something you guys have to think about in other industries. And, and now as you expand further into oil and gas, what are oil and gas companies going to be that go out and drill and produce and transport oil? It's, it's, it's a tough question, right? I mean, I think, I think part of it is understanding, first off, you have to understand downstream. Right. Because that becomes understanding what sure. products you're producing and what you're doing. Right. I think part of it is what do you do with that land? Right. So in certain cases, you might be like, you know, these wells, we just can't keep using. Right. So do you repurpose them for something else? Right. Do you go and invest in carbon capture? Maybe. Right. So you take that same power, you take that same land, and now you're building towers that are pulling CO2 out of the atmosphere. That's, that's a total reinvention, by the way, right? That's sure. saying we're going from one to the other. But I think the important thing to recognize is it's very difficult to start by saying we're going to do X. It has to be by looking at the supply chain and being like, the supply chain is going to man, it's still going to require you know, these products for these industries, right? So here's what our demand is going to look like. Here's what the end products have to look like. Here's what our production looks like and what we can continue to support to produce those things. And here's where in 10, 15, 20 years, we can no longer support. So what do we do with those? I think that's that's how I would think about it, right? It's, it's complex cool. because every company is different. Every company is producing a different product with a different mechanism. So there's no blanket solution. I think that's one key takeaway when it comes to ESG is that there is no one size fits all. It just can't be. So anyone who says, you know, we can put, here's yeah, the solution, yeah, yeah. you know, the, the clickbait right. article, this, this one thing, it's wrong. Okay. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> and continue to make money along the way. Yeah, exactly. All right, Karthik, it's been great having you on. Well I, I 
really love having these kinds of conversations. I think it'd be great for our listeners as well, just even the last five minutes talking about ESG. and But I, it's completely fascinating. Love it. Yeah, Tim, I, I yeah, no, thank you so much. And Tim, you know, we talked about a panel. I think it'd be interesting to bring people from different sects, right? Somebody from the tech side, somebody from Silicon Valley, somebody, you know, from an op- a small operator, somebody from a big operator. Uh, you know, I think we could we could bring some unique perspectives together because this topic is not going away. No, I there's going to be a whole new industry to, to, that's going to come about just on ESG in general. So, um, yeah, it's 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 here to stay. Facts. Fascinating. So, uh, Karthik, tell people where can they find you, your company, anything more people, if you know, if uh, they want to they want to search you out. Yeah. So uh, our homepage is at actualhq.com, A-C-T-U-A-L-H-Q.com. And uh, you can also reach me by email, just letter K at actualhq.com. Or you can get in touch with uh, with uh, Jeremy and uh, we go from there. <laughs> you can find me. We're all on LinkedIn. Yes. You know it. <laughs> Thanks so much, Karthik. Appreciate you, man. Thank you. Appreciate this. All right.